Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Shop. On this Inside Intercom mini-series, we're exploring the world of retail and e-commerce, the past, the present and the future. Over the next four weeks, we'll be delving into the physical history of the store, how our habits have changed, what's fueling the shift online and how the events of 2020 may inform how we shop, plan and build in the future. Today's episode is part one in the series, Store, and we'll be hearing about the rise and fall of the American-style mall and how e-commerce, along with strong urban planning initiatives, may offer a brighter future for our urban spaces. As Bill Bryson once quipped, we used to build civilizations, now we build shopping malls. And indeed, this used to be the case. Initially conceived by Victor Grun in the post-war period, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, the American shopping mall was a pillar of pop culture and society and seemed to be an indelible part of the culture. But these shopping malls, which were so closely aligned with the modern madness for the car, were only a small part of the socialist architect's original vision. And with the advent of the internet, over the last 20 years, these behemoths of retail have been in sharp decline. Earlier this year, in an episode of Intercom on Product, our own SV of product, Paul Adams, made the case that physical retail spaces would in the future become real-time adverts for the online marketplace they represented. So, to start us off, we chatted to him to get his perspective on how this came about. Uh, yeah, we were talking about the Glossier store in New York, which I went to visit late last year, getting some stuff for my wife. I was on a New York trip for work. And it was unlike any store experience I experienced prior. Glossier are an online brand, a direct-to-consumer brand, so they don't really need a store anywhere. Uh, and it was purely, ex- as you said, ex- experiential. It was a real brand-building experience. Uh, it's very hard to describe. But what that got me thinking about was the impact that new technologies have on society. So we often think about e-commerce as being the same commerce that we all know and love in the real world, just transported onto our computers and our phones. But that's never the way technology plays out. So for example, if you look back at prior technologies when they were invented, the first ways in which they were used were always framed and constrained by the technologies that preceded them. So for example, the telephone, when it was first invented, was not used for phone calls. It was used for broadcasting concerts. And so people were taking you know, prior technologies and applying it to the new one. Another example is cinema. So the first movies aren't the kind of movies that we know and love. The first movies were visual newspapers. So again, they took the prior technology, the newspaper, and used it in the new medium. And, and this, like every tech, if you look back at the history of all media communication technologies, it's all the same story. TV, the first TV shows were filmed plays. People actually just putting a, a play and filming it and putting it on a TV. First internet ads were billboards. You know, we call them banner ads eventually, but they're basically, basically just billboard ads on a screen. And so that's the history of technology. And so when you think about commerce and stores and the internet and phones and how new, still relatively new the internet is, I think it's going to really change commerce, you know, and we're kind of only scratching, the kind of glossiest store, I think, is is scratching the surface of how how it will be in the future. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because in addition to being adverts, they'll need to be fulfillment hubs of sorts as well because people might want to have a physical space that they can go to pick up rather than waiting for a delivery. 
Yeah, to- absolutely. So the the kind of core thing I always point people towards with these types of conversations is to think about the behavior and motivation people have. So for example, uh, you know, in the like pre-internet era, or certainly pre-mobile phone era, and still for the most part today, people go into city centers, town centers, go around all the shops and stores, window shop, you know, the idea that you window shop is even a phrase that we use. But actually most people, when they're trying to decide what they're going to buy, would way prefer to do it on their couch, you know, at home, in the comfort of their own home, in private. They're not under pressure from any kind of sales assistant. They can easily share with their friends, family, show them, uh, you know, no one's watching them. And so the behavior is actually the thing that will often motivate the change. So I think we will see a lot of stores looking like either brand experiences, so they're experiential in some way, i.e. the kind of product isn't being sold directly. That's not the, the design of the store's intention. It's to do something else, make you feel something. And then, like you said, fulfillment stores where people have chosen, shopped online um, the fastest way they can get something or the preferred way, for example, because it's more convenient just to pick it up rather than get it delivered. That journey from window shopping to couch shopping certainly sounds particularly familiar to me, I have to be honest. Yep, <laughs> yeah. Going back to your earlier point there, Paul, around how these new mediums or medias are sort of defined by what came before. Let's jump back a bit and look at the traditional American style mall then, because when Victor Gruen originally designed what's now a really familiar idea to us of that anchor store surrounded by smaller shops, it was really groundbreaking at the time. And you'd almost call it a disruptor to use tech vocabulary. But what was it, do you think, about mid 20th century life that made it so successful as a design at the time and one which we saw spread well beyond America to our own shores here and beyond. Yeah, and it had loads of downstream implications like how society and suburbia got constructed. Like, again, with all these technologies, you know, when you kind of go back and study the history of these things, very common themes will appear. So, for example, one is access. So accessibility to something is, is, is something that really changes and determines how people live. Another one is convenience. So like to use the modern example, it's just more accessible and convenient to pick up your phone sitting at home and start window shopping than it is to actually put on your jacket, go out the door, head into the town and so on, right? So access and convenience are huge. And then back in the in the kind of mid 20th century, it was just much easier to get in your car, which, which was also like an exciting thing that people were starting to buy cars and have cars and the middle classes were starting to have, have, the, have like a car per family and so on. And so it was just more accessible and convenient to jump in your car, drive on your brand new road. So like, again, in the mid the mid 20th century, there was so much investment, especially in the United States, into suburbia and the construction of suburbia and, and the roads were all brand new. And so it was exciting, convenient to head, head into your car and head to the mall. And so like, I think, you know, one of the reasons that, that, that these things took off was were themes like access and convenience. And again, we see that they're the same things that we see now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing I'd love to ask you from a designer perspective, like Grun's original design was part of a much bigger vision for pedestrian-based mixed-use development. And that was kind of never truly realized. So do you think that kind of plucking that one element from his plans and ultimately, as you say, aligning it with the need for a car and ignoring all the other positive elements are part of what might have led to the decline of malls in later decades? Yeah, this is going to be really hard to figure out. 
when you know when you look back like, like I, I originally studied industrial design and i'm fascinated by urban planning and architecture so I, I kind of nerd out on this stuff and it's easy to look back and retrospect at things that happened and how they played out and see the patterns and this usually is over the course of a decade or two but actually when you're living through it it's you don't see any of this stuff it's all noise or not noise just normal life actually you know uh, and for us right now i think there's like two fascinating things happening one is this transition to online commerce, which again, I think we're only starting to see the impact of. But then we're also kind of living through this pandemic, which is dramatically changing how and where people move about the world. And some of these habits will stick. So for example, more people will work from home, I think it's safe to say, and that will mean less people heading into city centers, which means less potential footfall for all of the stores in a town center or city center. And, and then cheaper housing out, out in suburbia, more people moving to suburbia. So there's actually, I think at the moment, like during this decade, we'll start to see these kind of opposing forces at play. And I'm actually not sure how it will go, you know, because like on the one hand, you might actually have more people moving to suburbia and you actually might have fewer people in the city centers. And then on the other hand, usually these malls have flagship tenants and these, a lot of these flagship tents are companies that were, you know, hugely successful all through the 20th century and didn't really adapt well to like post-internet life. You know, things like Sears in the US, Nordstrom in the US. I, I think these, I'm not sure if these specific companies have struggled, but a lot of these big anchor tenants have struggled. And some of them have gone out of business, leaving these huge gaping holes. And, and the, the thing is designed in such a way that the big giant company has to come in and fill the space. So. I'm not really sure, honestly, where it will go next. What I would bet on is internet shopping <laughs> growing and whether these malls will actually start to fill up again as more people move back to the suburbs, if that happens. I think it's, I don't know, and, and the kind of smaller shops around that. I'm not really sure how it will play out. Yeah, I mean, but, and maybe it's just a case that they'll move away from the the anchor store way of, of using those spaces. Yeah. Let's chat a bit about when the decline started for spaces like that or malls like that. Do you see e-commerce as being a big contributor to this or were there other factors that you think have played a part? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's honestly hard to know because we're in the midst of a change that's probably going to take place over the course of a decade. You have to imagine the internet is the biggest force at play. I, just, like, you know, I can't imagine that that's not true. Again, going back to the ideas of, of access and convenience, this must being in your house is more accessible than having to go outside. There's also obviously like kind of social structures where in the past the mall was the, especially in the United States, the kind of centering point for people to meet. So like, you know, everything from teenagers in high school or all the way up to adults, people would meet in the shopping center in the mall. And then in, in the decades that passed, you know, some of them kind of fell into disrepair a little bit. They weren't as cool or edgy or new as they used to be. New, you know, new things sprung up and people were able to travel further with like cars and airplanes and all sorts of stuff like that. So I'd say there was multiple factors that like started to see these companies and malls struggle. But I got to imagine that like the move to shopping online has got to be the biggest one by far. One person who has closely followed the rise and fall of American malls is Deb Fallows. Along with her husband, James, Deb is the author of Our Towns, a 100,000-mile journey into the heart of America. 
For this book and their long-running series for The Atlantic, the couple travelled the length and breadth of America in their Cirrus airplane, visiting small towns across its heartlands. From their unique bird's-eye perspective, they've observed the decline and changes of urban spaces, noting overgrown car parks and empty malls from the sky. But Deb's relationship with the shopping mall goes much deeper. From her first visit as a child, they've loomed large in her life. Yeah, the malls are so interesting, and I feel like I lived through the rise and fall of malls in America. I was living in Edina, which is near Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota, when I was a little kid. And Victor Gruen actually designed the Southdale Mall, which was one of the first to open up there. I remember it distinctly, going with my mom in a car to the mall to kind of look around and shop. And it was this larger than life, brand new experience where you felt like you were in Hollywood or something because it was it was completely different from life in the suburbs or even in the city where the focal point was, was say one department store to be in this sprawling place where it was, it was like a fairyland. It was like Disneyland and, and that was all new. Let's talk a little bit, though, about your work for The Atlantic and Our Towns, your book. Um, It meant that you traversed the US by Cirrus Airplane, as you said, and you visited various communities. Do you think that that aerial view that you got of a town on approach gives you a unique perspective when you're on the ground talking to people? It really does. It was such a privilege to enter towns this way because, you know, first of all, you get the sense of what a vast country America is. You can just Mm. fly for hours hour you can fly for days in a small plane over over the upper midwest iowa the dakotas montana and see nothing on the ground and then suddenly you approach a small town and you really get this aerial sense of an outline of the town you you see how they developed with this the kind of grid of downtown you see the important factors were they on a lake were they on a river you see the economics of the town are there a lot of in-ground pools behind the houses or are they above ground the kind of circular rubber pools that are are built up there you can see the factories are there lots of cars or there's one in particular in Columbus, Mississippi, where the downtown airport is is right in the middle of the town over a closed factory, pretty modest factory, but you see the broken windows, you see the abandoned parking lots with weeds growing up in the parking lots. So you get a, a sense of the history of how long the, the development or decline of these towns was going on too. And then you see the sprawl from the highways to the main road into town and these little outcroppings of strip malls and and sometimes bigger malls that defined the approach to the town. So it's it's like reading a book to fly in in a small plane and get that introduction. So I guess then you must have, like you've said, there's these particular tells to economic decline that you can literally spot from the sky. You can, and and I'll tell you, we've been up in our plane a few times only since the pandemic, and the contrast is so sharp because whereas before you got the sense of such bustling activities, the schools, the parking lots were full, the buses were out on the streets, you can spot them when you're flying low. They're very easy to, to, to see their routes. You see the malls still that exist that, that were packed with cars now, basically empty 
and just a kind of quietness that you only see a few cards on the road. So, you know, that, that sense of what you see, what used to be all socioeconomics, the housing developments or the small towns or the malls, now has turned to a sense of well, what is thriving where in this country, what is closed up, what is shut down. And that's all new. And, and of course, God, we hope temporary to some extent when it will start to open up again. I mean, you really do see the, um, the gradual rise and fall of the malls more intimately when you're on the ground than when you are in the air. And being on the ground now, I think, you know, what we've seen during our travels, which has really started in about 2013, so since the last 10 years or so, was town by town an indication of what malls did to a town, both what they offered it and the costs that were paid and how the shifts in the towns themselves were kind of working themselves out to come to a place where they were more suitable to the life and the culture of the towns. So with the, your typical traditional American town, what happened with Main Street or downtown, you know, when it's been abandoned in favor of the mall and it's gone into sharp decline and now the malls are failing too, what's happening with those communities? We spent a lot of time in Redlands, California, which happens to be my husband's hometown. So we have seen the rise and fall of mall life and downtown life there uh, since the late 60s. In Redlands, which was then a town of about maybe 30 to 40,000 people, had a very beautiful old historic downtown with a grid of, I would say, like 10 streets square in the commercial area. They decided to build a mall smack in the middle of downtown and raised three or four blocks of the of the downtown buildings and built a small mall, the Redlands Mall. At first, it was super exciting. People would mm. walk there because there was a little department store, which had never, you used to have to, in California there, travel for 20 minutes to get to any kind of shopping at all besides, you know, the corner drugstore or the, the little mom and pop variety store and clothing store. So suddenly to have this mall with a branded anchor institution of big shopping and a bunch of other little shops like, <laughs> I don't know if you appreciate this in, in Ireland, but there was a shop called Hot Dog on a Stick. A little kind of carnival vendor where the where the young girls dressed up in red, yellow, and blue and had mini skirts and, and big hats and, right. you know, hot dogs that were <laughs> coated in breaded stuff. They, nothing was good about this edibly, but it was, it was a culture experience. You felt like you were in the movies. You felt like you were in TV. You were definitely in the late 60s culture when the, you know, the baby boomers, of which I'm one, were the be-all and end-all of pop culture. That mall has gone through a kind of classic decline. It went through a turnover of three or four different main shopping anchor stores. And for some reason, I don't know, it just kind of couldn't sustain the traffic and didn't have a big enough inventory. It didn't bring people in from out of town, only in this small town. And even the little shops... You know, they were fun, but it was almost like the veneer and excitement of this mall wore off over time. Yeah. And a few grotty stores came in and a few stores that seemed like not designer stores in any sense, but, but more cheap goods came in. 
And it also started to kind of suck the life out of the adjacent streets, which were the heart of the downtown retail and shopping and restaurant district in town. So you had this pull in from the old, what was left of the old downtown to this mall that was kind of fragile. Today, that mall has been sitting there completely abandoned, except for one CVS, which is the big pharmacy drugstore that we have in the yeah. U.S in one corner of it, which is now, unfortunately, a kind of drug haven, and a parking lot. It's boarded up. It's completely dark. There are weeds everywhere. They've tried to get a redevelopment from buyers and are have struggled through one possible plan over another to recreate it into any kind of space, you know, into the old streets that it were, maybe mixed use with some restaurants and and housing and all of the the kind of magic that goes into rebuilding downtown life. Meanwhile, next door, people are really appreciating the old downtown streets and are having weekly street fairs at night. A few specialty shops with kind of cool stuff have come in there. Very niche market stores, but you, you physically feel the shift over the last, I don't know, you know, it's been um, probably since the 80s or 90s until now that this kind of gradual wave has been going on, but has reached a point where it's just a blight to have this old abandoned mall sitting there in the in the middle of the downtown. The decline of malls possibly offers urban planners a unique opportunity to regenerate downtown areas for sure. But as Deb says, it leaves a big empty shell where the mall once sat. I wanted to find out more about how cities and towns can successfully navigate this change and get a more global perspective. So I spoke to Melbourne's Director of City Design, Professor Rob Adams. Professor Adams once referred to urban design as urban choreography. And I must say, I was intrigued by this definition. The title Urban Choreography came to me when I was co-authoring a book with two colleagues and we started to talk about, you know, what what had happened over the 30-odd years that we'd been changing the city. And I suddenly realised, and it was going back maybe to the Oxford Brooks where I I learnt about a lady called Banesh and how she choreographed, you know, the difficult juxtaposition between music and positions on a stage. And I suddenly thought, yeah, that's what we do. We, we do partially design, part of it is politics, part of it is bringing people together and from you know, our organization and different organizations and uh, trying to uh, get the best out of the particular problem we're working on at the time. And so urban choreography seemed to fit and uh, it's been the most comfortable fit for me since I came up with that uh, title because I no longer battle to try and tell people what urban design's about. Um, but I can tell them what urban choreography is about. Queen Victoria Market is one of the biggest markets, I think, anywhere in the world. It's seven hectares of market. Melbourne didn't have any big public spaces when it was uh, originally designed, but it had five marketplaces. And uh, this is the sole remaining market, uh, which is on the north side of the CBD. It's uh, like any other market, it's a combination of food and uh, delicatessens and general merchandise. And it's predominantly in open, open-air sheds, which uh, corrugated iron and you know, very simple uh, structures. So it's quite a challenging trading environment. Uh, there are small areas, the deli and the meat hall, that are indoor environments. 
And it's one of the most beloved places in Melbourne. It's, it's the most visited as a tourist attraction. But slowly, it's dying. And it's dying like most markets around uh, the world. I know in the UK, there was a House of Commons paper on markets and how, you know what was happening to them. And so back in 2014, as I said, we had our third attempt to look at the market uh, and try and convince the traders, of which there's 700, all independent traders, obviously, that we needed to change the way it was operating, that if we continued on the way that we were going, it would slowly die, you know, not through neglect, but through the unwillingness to just change uh, the way things were operating. We started that process by uh, engaging with the state government first and uh, putting in place a remodeling of the land configurations around the market to create uh, a couple of adjacent sites, one of them directly opposite the dairy hall across the road called Perry Street. And the reason there was part of the seven hectare site is about two and a half hectares of open lot car parking. And not a great urban feel when you come to this car park and have to cross it to get to the market itself. And we thought if we could get the site next door, we could move the car parking off the open lot and we could put it into an underground car park of 500 cars. And then we could repurpose that, that space uh, as a public space, a market square. Mm. So that was the first step we made. And we successfully got the, uh, the state government to allow us to take some road space and convert it into a commercial site that could be uh, developed and that money also could be reinvested in the market. Then we started put together a master plan that showed the, the different quarters of the market. And there, there are you know, five quarters in this market. The fifth was the site we bought. There were four quarters and then we got this fifth site. And we put together a plan for them. So one of the quarters operates quite well. It's the, the dairy hall and it's the meat hall and we've got some really good tenants in there and it's got it's Victorian buildings and it works really well. But for the rest of it, it's these broad sheds in the car park and, and then this new site we bought. And what we've had to do is, it's not one project, it's about 48 projects. And each of them, you know, be it a thing like weatherproofing just to get better weather conditions or process we're going through at the moment, you know, re restoration of the sheds. We're then putting corrugated iron back, but sand insulation just to give better environmental impacts. We also have a whole change strategy about the type of trading we'd want in the future. And this is where, is where it gets highly emotional with the traders because a lot of them don't want to change. They, uh, a lot of them are very old. They've been trading like this all their life. And uh, there's a great resistance to thinking about a different way of trading. So it's, it's one of the most complex projects I think I've worked on. And as I said, uh, we've been going at it now for six years. We're starting to get traction. The tra traders are starting to see um, what it is we're trying to do and recognizing that we're not here to gentrify the market. We're here to try and provide the facilities that they need to trade better in, in this uh, quite harsh environment. And uh, we've started the restoration of the sheds. We've got a couple of uh, new sh uh, uh, sheds going in to better handle waste. Uh, we've got a very high sustainability uh, requirement on the site. So it, it's underway. It'll take another five or six years to finish. Uh, and uh, in many ways represents so many of the projects we've done. Uh, I think people think you come to a city and you change it overnight. 
but it's an incredibly slow process and uh, it's quite intense and uh, it sometimes gets quite emotional, uh, you know, with the constituency working with. But uh, you've just got to work through a slow process of collaboration and, uh, you know, dialogue uh, and hopefully arrive at the same understanding of what you're trying to do. I mean, I guess in, in a way, in a nutshell, it sort of sums up urban design itself. As an architect, you often have maybe one or two clients, but there's so many stakeholders to a project like that. There are. I mean, and, and you know, you're never quite sure, um, you know, where, where it's going to come at you. You know, uh, one of the reasons we went and negotiated with state government first is on the previous two occasions, when, when the going got tough, uh, 700 traders would rock up to... Uh, state parliament and say, you know, the, the city is trying to kill the market mm-hmm. and the premier of the day would stop it. So we had to make the state government a partner first. So they had skin in the game. Otherwise, uh, you know, you get into that situation where you can be gazumped by the high authority. And and then, you know, you get resistance groups, friends of the Queen Victoria market, a small group but highly vocal who managed to, you know, convince a lot of people that what we're trying to do is completely change the market. And and a lot of the information they put out, you know, has misrepresented, I think, the nature of it. In fact, you know, people thought we were going to start building big buildings on the sheds when it's a heritage area. You couldn't have done that. So, yeah, a lot of stakeholders, but um, it's an exciting project. I mean, I, I like the fact that with urban design and with cities, You start out knowing what the target is. Target here is to save this market, keep it trading in the way it used to trade, but give people the facilities that allow them to, you know, make a living out of it in this this day and age. And where you think you might start and end usually changes quite a few times through the process. Uh, And that's the nature of uh, a lot of the work that we do. Of course. And I mean, shopping and retail spaces, they're such an important part of an urban fabric. So for you, outside of Melbourne, obviously, where in the world has best-in-class shopping spaces or districts, and, and why would you say that? Well, um, I love the, the European shopping experience because I think, uh, you know, you go to places like Barcelona, the market is part of the, the local area. It's not one big market like ours. They've got, you know, multiple markets throughout Barcelona and very much a part of their culture. So I think the Europeans uh, do shopping well and they haven't got trapped into the the big, you know, out-of-town supermarkets, uh, as is the American example. So uh, I enjoy that. I think a lot of the Asia-Pacific countries, again, have this rich culture in in retail. When I was in KL many years ago, uh, what was a street during the day became a thriving market at night. Uh, And that ability to change a city you know, from one hour to another hour, I just find absolutely fascinating. In fact, I think one of the biggest challenges we face in cities today is our ability to, in fact, be able to reinvent ourselves without having to rebuild. And mm-hmm. particularly in, in, in Melbourne, where we would kind of double our population from five to 10 million by about uh, you know, 2040, you just don't have time and money to rebuild the city. So you've got to repurpose it. And uh, so Melbourne's done that. Melbourne, since the 1980s, we've repurposed our laneways that used to be for servicing properties into the most attractive eating areas, just by allowing people to eat outside, providing liquor licensing, 
not doing a lot of fabric changing, maybe some paving and some lighting, but just uh, allowing people to externalize from a very small footprint into the public realm. And so Melbourne uh, has got an incredibly rich uh, retailing experience, uh, so much so that uh, the central city that was dying at retail in the 1980s now is has for the last uh, 10 years threatened the suburban retail centres and they want to be more like Melbourne. They're trying to make their shopping experience into a laneway experience, uh, you know, a real street experience rather than just a big box with a lot of glamour. So Melbourne's got a, a good shopping experience and it's a combination in a way of that European experience because we grew up in a Victorian age and so a lot of the architecture and the form is similar to a European city. But we've got a huge Asian population, so we've got that overlay of that lovely Asia-Pacific aspect to our city as well. And you can go down into areas, you know, and, uh, you know, there's, there's Chinatown, there's Little Vietnam, there's, you know, uh, Ligon Street, which is Italian, and we just we have a series of villages where you have different cultures mixing. And it's a really long answer, but the secret to a good piece of city comes in a package of five or six things. You need a reasonable density, you need enough people in a place to make it seem vibrant. Those people need to be well connected. They need to be able to move around by walking, by bike, by bus, by tram in our instance, uh, train, and, and of course the motor car. You also need mixed use, and mixed use is the most fundamental thing. A lot of cities, and the thing that disappointed me in the 1960s when I traveled as a student around Britain and other places was, you know, you go to Stevenage and everything had been isolated into different places, and it was just boring. You know, you had to climb in your car to go shopping, you had to climb in your car to go to the recreation center. So that mixture of use that utilizes the infrastructure at different times of the day for different uses is absolutely essential. Then there are two other things. There's a high-quality public realm, and that's the stuff that Jan Gell talks about. It's the, the stuff outside of buildings, the public space. And that needs to be of a high quality, and, and that's, I think, easy for all of us to recognise. You know when you walk into a good street, uh, but sometimes hard for new cities to achieve. And the final thing is local character. You want to be of your place. You don't want to be you know, trying to copy someone else and doing it badly. I mean, Sydney's come to us and said, we love your laneway culture. How do we get a laneway culture? And the answer is, well, you've got to have laneways. Uh, and, hmm. and their morphology didn't have laneways. It didn't grow up in the same way Melbourne did. So, you know, don't try for a laneway culture. There's something else you must be looking at. So those are some of the backgrounds that make for good retail. When you get those combination of things coming together, then you get a good retailing environment. So a good retail environment can add a lot to a city or town. That much is clear. But what happens to those spaces when retail moves online? One encouraging trend Deb has observed in her travels is that these big spaces can now find new life and might offer a completely different purpose. This is the story of of what's going on with most the struggle with most of the old malls in America that aren't working anymore, which is like most of them. Sioux Falls, South Dakota is a good example of this. Uh, It is now a town of about 200,000 people in the middle of South Dakota. And it's a town where it kind of draws its commerce and retail and tourist activity from the whole state of South Dakota, because there are a lot of small towns out there. But if you want to get 
legal care or medical care or any kind of counsel and referrals, you go to Sioux Falls. There was a giant shopping mall area with one in particular at the base, which had a bunch of big retail anchor shops. We were there a series of times over the last five years or so, and very recently, where that mall was was kind of imploding. There were a few places left, but they were closing daily. And the internals of the mall were still there, but people had nowhere to walk around because there were very few places to shop. One of the biggest department stores was closed down and the U.S. organization called FEMA, it's the Federal Emergency Management Group, they actually came from Washington, D.C. and set up their temporary quarters in a big space rented at the mall deal with with the flooding that was going on and the devastation in the farmlands and communities around Sioux Falls. So you went from shopping into this, you know, government-run emergency activity and a few other malls. What's going on in that mall now is very typical of the, the shift over and pivot in a lot of malls in the U.S. They are thinking, okay, We've got all these old baby boomers who want different kinds of places to live. Let's consider building a senior center, a senior residential living center. And those baby boomers want to recreate the same thing that everybody does now. They want walkability to theaters, to coffee shops, to gyms. In cold places like Sioux Falls, you want to be able to do that indoors in the winter and have access to the walking paths in the summer. So it's it's recreating all of the amenities of daily life into this huge space that can accommodate a theater, a gym, a residential area, walking spaces with a completely different kind of temperament and and functionality that the old malls have. So a lot of the malls are with the benefit and opportunity of being so big they have to build things that that you would otherwise really struggle with. And very often spaces that are buildings that are that big or that vast aren't really built for humans to kind of have, you know, live in comfortably, whereas malls would be different in that regard. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And, and the ones that aren't going so dramatically to say have uh, mixed use living have places inside that people need. There's a mall in Claremont, California, which is in Southern California, about 40 miles east of Los Angeles, that has a library there because, you know, a lot of people don't want to go shopping, but they want to be with whomever they went. So they go and hang out in the library while the people shop. There are mini date drop-off centers for kids because if the mom or dad needs to zip around really fast, the kid doesn't want to be dragged around there. They'll pop them into that drop-off center for an hour or two. And while mom and dad chop and then come back. So, you know, that plus a lot of restaurants, more restaurants, quick restaurants and food places going in are other opportunities. What the pandemic will do to this, I'm sure something because people's habits are changing. Certainly online retail was a big cause of of the decline of malls. And just judging from my own street, how quickly those delivery services come and how many more are dropping off things in houses has to have some effect on the in-person shopping. So, you know, you just feel that the future is coming and it's going to be different, but the reinvention 
will be driven by the experiences that people are having during this at least year of changing lifestyles. That's so true. And I just wanted to ask, I just find it really interesting how you were saying that there's these mixed use developments being built in malls that are being designed for particularly the baby boomer generation to have, you know, a kind of a comfortable older living. Did you ever imagine when you were younger and having your hot dog on a stick in a mall (laughs) that these spaces would somehow someday be the place where a whole generation could end up looking at living? (laughs) <laughs> no, of course not. That I mean, it's imp- it's so hard yeah. to imagine your way into the future, especially when you're young and all you can think about is, you know, hot dog on a stick. <laughs> you, you never imagine yourself growing older and you, and you never imagine that you're going to move out of your own house. One thing's for sure in 2020, it's become a time where some of us can't imagine leaving our own house, never mind moving out of it. So when we're all stuck at home, e-commerce is undoubtedly thriving. We asked Rob what this might mean for the downtown retail spaces that surround us. As one of the proponents of the 20 Minute City, he has a unique perspective. The 20 Minute City comes from the fact that what that has done and what Melbourne has always had is this really strong central core. If you wanted to, you know, hold your hand out as a palm and you put your finger right in the middle of your palm, that would be our CBD. And your fingers would be these radial rail lines and tram lines running out of the city into the suburbs. And the challenge with a city like that is everybody has to come in one of those lines to the centre and then go out another one and the connectivity isn't good. And so people tend to use cars more than uh, possibly would like them. Mm. One of the great things about COVID is everybody's been locked into their local area and people have suddenly started to ask the question, you know, why isn't this local area better? Uh, why, Why doesn't it offer me what I get in the city? And fortunately, the morphology of the city is such that of course, there's this radio pattern, there are railway stations. You do have what we call activity centres. And I think there are about 56 of these that have dotted all over our metropolitan area. And each one of those is a little bit of a village. And the 20-minute city really came from recognising that and saying, all right, if we could make each one of those activity centres into a good place to be, and then we could take the connectors to those, in many cases the tram and bus routes, the, not the rail routes because they're different, difficult to build alongside, and we could turn those into high streets that connect to these different activity centres. Just about every person in metropolitan Melbourne would, would in 20 minutes be able to walk to a high street or to a centre. And that was the start of this thing, the 20-minute city for us. Nothing in this is a new concept. I mean, planners who would be listening to this think oh, we know all about that. But uh, Melbourne has the opportunity to do it really well. And 10 years ago, I wrote a paper called Transforming Australian Cities. And it was on this particular concept. And it looks at how you do that. And the, the interesting thing is I think uh, it started to happen, but I think COVID's going to accelerate that. And I think that's quite exciting for Melbourne. Yeah, you mentioned how COVID will accelerate that. And I I guess it it makes sense if people are at home that they suddenly start looking out the window and and maybe devoting a bit more time and attention to the the town that they live in. Do you think, though, that the likes of e-commerce is potentially valuable within that framework? Because it means that businesses aren't limited to a geographical catchment area. 
I think that's right. You know, I think the the biggest thing that has changed is the way we've all suddenly realised, you know, we don't have to, in fact, in, live in a particular location to access the things we want to get. And, and work has been the big one of those after, over the last year. But it'll mean for a lot of retailers a completely different offer. To the extent it'll change in Melbourne, Melbournians, the Aboriginal owners of this land used to have a word Tandarum, and Tandarum was meeting place. And you know, five different groups used to come together in central Melbourne and meet where the MCG is, which is the great cricket footy ground. And when this was explained to me initially, I thought that typifies Melbourne. Melbourne is a meeting place. Melbourne is where it's a coldish climate, it's Mediterranean. We like to, in many cases, be indoors. We like to be pretty intimate. We most probably more cerebral than we are sporting orientated, as with uh, you know, up the, the cities to the north of us. And you can put on any event. I often joke if you put on a game of tiddlywinks, 100 people would turn up to it. <laughs> you know, uh, we just love to participate. So I think what we're going to get is a combination of we will still come in and participate and still be part of that experience of, of being intimate. But we will also realise that maybe you don't have to come into the office five days a week. Uh, maybe, you know, uh, two or three days a week uh, enables you to do the things you, you like to do in the office in terms of interaction. And for the others, you, you know, save yourself the hour commute and start working. And the same is happening with retail. I mean, everybody's ordering stuff online at the moment, whether it be food or whether it be clothing. And the retailers have adapted really well. If you get something you don't like, you stick it in and send it back and they'll change it for you. So I think retail is going to go through an interesting change. I don't have the crystal ball to where it's going to land. But what I do think is that um, the more bespoke retail mm. is going to be a better survivor than, say, the, the bigger uh, retailers. People are going to look for something with a slight difference about it something that's quite quirky. And whereas before a shop most really had to hold a whole lot of merchandise to make it viable, a shop now could hold, you know, I'll pick a number, 30 good items and still be viable because people will be buying it because of the nature of that item. Do I think that's a good thing? Actually, I do, because I think it'll bring, bring back the craft and the design in the product rather than the mass production that we, you know, we were a bit hooked on. So... Retail is going to go through a bit of a shake-up, but I think where it lands will be uh, quite healthy. So the connectivity this has given us is, is really very exciting. The other experience that we've had is we're in a city, so we can literally walk to anything we want, and uh, we're very lucky for that, that experience. And around us are four supermarkets. So if I wanted to go to any supermarket, I could go. Have I been to many of those during COVID? No. There's a little lady who calls herself the Rose Street Pantry. And she's got most of what I need. But what she's got is really good quality, you know, organic vegetables. She's got a little French baker who bakes the bread and actually now delivers it to us, you know, in a brown paper bag with some old, you know, twine around it and a flower in it with a message on the packet to Robin Rosie. And... The intimacy we've found in dealing with someone on that small scale is, is something we really enjoy. It becomes part, you know, uh, retailing is not just about buying. It's about the experience you have around it. 
And uh, that's, that's what we've got out of this experience. And that's what you get out of a village uh, or, or the central city. Yes, you go to shop, but you also go to maybe have a meal or, or go to a show or, or do something before and after. So it's a more layered experience. And, and I, I think we're going, to get, we're going to get more of that rather than just, you know, the, the big shop. Yeah, I, I I love what you're saying there because it is there's there's a kind of personalization to something like that that's really, really important. Rob, as retail and commerce do shift online, and it's a trend that's certainly been accelerated this year, as you've described, what do you think the future will look like then for the physical spaces that they've traditionally inhabited? Look, um, I would not like to be owning a lot of big box retail at the moment, but I think the good news is I think they're very valuable sites and they'll be redeveloped. And they'll be redeveloped as mixed-use pieces of city. So whereas you have maybe a single-storey, you know, large shed with no windows facing outwards and a big parking lot around it, you're going to get people redeveloping that with the roads coming back the road is the most important space in the city. If I say nothing else tonight, if you design a good street, you design a good city. And that's because 80% of the public space of a city is made up of roads. And so mending pieces of city usually means putting back the fabric that traditionally was there, the roads that allow people to interact and connect people to other people. So I think the big box retailing is gone quite frankly. I think we see that slowly phased out uh, over the next decade, decade and a half, as people build back this mixed-use piece of city. I think we will see more of the small bespoke retail and and they will exist not through the people who walk through the door, but their online experience. Uh, But the walk through the door will be mostly people discovering them when they're discovering cities and things like that. I think the the return of well-crafted quality goods will be dominant. I don't think people are buying as much. I don't think we I think we suddenly realized we don't need as much stuff. I mean, one of the interesting things of COVID again, of course, people were working from home. They had to clear out the junk room to make it their office. True. And, and you just see on the footpath, you know, you know, a whole lot of the old stuff that they mostly really thought they needed, but they haven't used for years. And so I think people are going to be looking for something. If I buy something, I don't mind spending more because I know it's going to last me 10 years rather than I'm going to change it in four months' time because fashion has changed. So that's the way I I think it's going. But um, I think out of all these crises, cities get better. And and my, my one hope for cities like Melbourne, it's not so much the European city, but it's the American, the... Uh, you know, Southern African, the Australian, uh, the car-orientated cities, is that they will come back in on themselves and they'll be looking for a quality experience where there will be greater density. And I think there's an irony in that because people think with COVID, you know, you need to get out into open space. That hasn't proved to be necessarily the case when you look at some of the cities. And I think people will come back. It'll be a rich uh, experience. And I'm very hopeful about where this, this will take us. It'll take us a few years to get over the shock, but I think we'll start moving in a much more positive direction and hopefully on a sustainable basis because uh, we haven't got much time in that field. It's certainly encouraging to take the view that e-commerce and urban planning combined might offer a brighter future for all. But I can't help wonder what parts we'll miss. What are the cultural and social risks to losing that in-person or in-store experience? 
In our next episode, we'll be hearing more about habits and social changes that we've seen over the last 20 years or so. For now, let's circle back to Paul, who had this to say. No matter how good technology gets, there's no replacement, in my opinion, for face-to-face interaction. Like, you know, our species has evolved over thousands of years. uh, And suddenly, like in the last 10 or 20 years, the the internet is not going to radically change the deep DNA (laughs) structures and how our brains operate and work and also, you know, even social cues we've learned over the last few hundred years. None of that's going away in our lifetimes. It'll it'll, it'll evolve and adapt and change, but it'll take hundreds of years for those things to really change. Nothing really substitutes for that. And And why is that useful? Well, like it's useful, first of all, just for social connection. You know, some people like chatting to the barista and, you know, chatting to the person in the shop and there's a social connection element to it. There is advice. People want to get advice, you know, and they want to talk and have someone help them pick between bunches of options, give them information on things that purchases that require like, you know, things like buying a new phone or buying technology, for example, versus buying clothes. And so I think there is a big opportunity for Internet companies, technology companies to replace that as best they can. You know, Intercom obviously product we build is is, that's one of the motivations behind it to make internet business personal we're trying to do that we're trying to build a new way to replace some of that social connection that's the kind of personal piece so it's not just all transactional but also that you know people get answers to the questions that they have like when people shop they have a million questions you know and they need answers to them and so they'll turn to their friends and family but in often cases they'll turn to the people who know about those things which are often the people who work for the companies And again, I think it's early. I think we'll we'll see lots of developments and opportunity here over the next few few years. So given everything that's happened in 2020 and the changes that you so wisely predicted last year, uh, having been accelerated, I'd love to get your thoughts on what the future might hold for retail and e-commerce, just taking into account that impact of the last nine months or so. Yeah, I always say to people that predicting the future is a fool's game. So <laughs> I obviously tried it. I obviously tried it last year. It worked out okay. Like you know, it's very hard to know. I imagine that in the kind of short to medium term, this pandemic's going nowhere, and so no matter whether there's a vaccine or not, for the for the next year, I, I think we're at least twelve months away from life like we knew it returning in some fashion. So you gotta imagine retail online retail is going to continue to explode like it's exploding you know if you look at the growth of shopify and other places like that it's exploding and so you gotta imagine that it will explode even further and then you have to imagine if history is is going to teach us anything that those new habits will stick right so like you know i never i've never i never before this pandemic bought my kind of weekly food shopping online i would go around to the actual food shop and buy it but lo and behold Delivery trucks are all over the place delivering food to people who've never done it before. You've got to imagine, again, back to access and convenience, that that's going to stick. Those habits will stick, especially if people have been doing them for a year or or a year and a half. And so I I think like people need to look out for patterns like that. It's back to the kind of root behavior, access, what's accessible, what's convenient. They're the things that will stick long past the pandemic finishing and us going back to some version of the way we used to live. Thanks for joining us for episode one of Shop, our four-part series looking at the retail and e-commerce landscape. We'll be back next week with another episode for you, Habits, 
where we'll deep dive into the social and behavioural changes that have influenced the industry, how they've manifested, and how those companies who used to offer shopping as an experience, rather than a transaction, are adapting to the change. We hope you'll join us. <laughs>